turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. If you were not with us last Lord's Day, you did not hear how we began to introduce the subject of the great doctrine of sanctification, or if you prefer, holiness, holiness, being like God, being separated from sin to be like God, mirroring the very image and character of His person and His likeness. And when we started this particular section of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, we began in verse 13, and I'd like to read it to you this morning as the setting for our time together. You follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God." For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. I've entitled these series of messages, How in the World Can I Be Holy? It's a provocative question, and it is a classically important question. It is a question that all of us need to ask ourselves if we name the name of Jesus Christ. And if you remember last time, if you were with us, that I began to answer that pivotal question, how in the world can I be holy, by looking at verse 13 verse that we read just a moment ago. And we saw, as I principalized that particular verse, by answering at least firstly, how to be holy in this world. And I answered by saying that the first principle or the first component or element of being holy in God's sight is to focus your mind on being brought to full conformity to the character of God. That is what Peter tells us there in verse 13. He says, Therefore, as a result of all that I've said to you about this wonderful salvation that you've been granted in Christ, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, therefore, answers the question, if you're saved, if you're on your way to heaven, if you ever hope for being glorified that is transformed 
fully into the character and nature of God, then in the here and now, you must progressively become conformed to the character of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And the way you do that is, as Peter tells us, to focus your mind on being brought into that glorified state in Christ. Focus on the goal. And the goal is that one day God will transform this humble body, this humble state in which we now live, this tent, this dwelling that we have, we call our bodies, including our minds, of course, God will one day bring us to the very reality that we will be just like Jesus Christ. An incredible thought. But there's a process that we must undergo in order to be brought to that place. And that process begins with a focus of our minds on the goal. And the way Peter tells us to do that is to fix our hope. Fix your hope. Place confident trust and expectation that God will deliver you in this life from your sin and bring you to the place of full and complete conformity to the image and character of God. Fix your hope. And not only fix your hope, but fix your hope completely on that grace. The full grace that God will give to each and every believer at His home going. And he says, there's a way to fix that hope. And it is to prepare your mind for action. You remember I said to you that this particular phrase was the idea of a person back in those times wearing a tunic or a robe. That's what they wore. And even the men would take this tunic, this robe, and if they were preparing themselves for a strenuous activity, for a race to be run, for a battle to be fought, they would take this robe and they would place it up and through the belt or the loin around the belt around their loins, and they would tie it off. They would secure it so that they could run fast, so that they could be ready for the battle. And Peter says, you likewise, spiritually speaking, gird up the loins of your mind. Take your mind and prepare it for the action that lies ahead. What action? The action of living the Christian life. The action of the trials and the tests and the suffering that we'll undergo. Remember, that's the context of 1 Peter. No doubt Peter was writing to these believers and they were at that moment, even then, suffering, going through great trial and test, some of them giving up their lives for the sake of the gospel. This would be very poignant for them. They, unlike us in so many ways, would be preparing their minds immediately every day for the impending death that they might undergo at any one moment. That would show us, or at least it should, that we, like they, should prepare our minds for action. And he says there's another way that you can focus your mind, focus your hope, and that is to be sober in spirit. You remember I said last time that it's the opposite of someone being physically drunk. It's someone who is prepared because there's a level of sobriety in their life. Not a downcast countenance. That's not what Peter's referring to. He's talking about a seriousness because you're going through trials and tests. You ought to know how to respond, and you ought not to be flippant about your life. You ought to be serious-minded. You ought to be ready for all of the things that may come, even severe persecution. Be sober in spirit. You remember I said to you that one commentator remarked, it's the opposite of mental intoxication. Don't be spiritually drunk. Don't be mentally sluggish. Allow yourself to be ready at all times spiritually for what you're about to undergo. And what all of us are about to undergo in even small ways up to greater ways is a level of testing that God will bring into our lives so that we might be fully prepared, sober in spirit, so that we might fix our hope completely on what Jesus Christ will do when He returns. That's the first step in your holiness. That's what Peter tells us. There's a second step, 
a second component, and I want you to see it from verses 14 to 16 for this morning's hour. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Here's the second principle. How in the world can I be holy? It is this. Not only a focusing of your hope on the full revelation that you'll be one day glorified, but forsake your old life of sin and be holy like your God. That's the second component. That's another way that you can be holy in this world. Forsake your old life of sin and be holy like your God. I want us to focus, first of all, this morning on a couple of different aspects of verses 14, 15, and 16. And the first one is this. Notice what Peter calls us. He says, as obedient children. Do you see it there in the first part of verse 14? As obedient children. Or, as I would rather translate it, as children of obedience. In other words, this is how we as Christians are characterized. This is who we are. This is what defines us. We are obedient children. We're children of or in the sphere of obedience. We are, if we have come to Christ by faith and repentance, children who are characterized by obedience. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't say that we should obey at least at this point. The first thing he does is that he describes us. He doesn't just go in to the command to obey. That's going to come later. Right now, he says, as you are children of obedience. In other words, live up to what you are described as being. The way he sets up the very concept of being holy is to say, look, if you name the name of Christ, if you love Jesus Christ, if you are a man or woman of God, if you are a believer in Christ, you are obedient. That's what characterizes you. That's what's, that's what's separating you from others in this world. He wants to describe who we are. He wants to define us. And then he goes into the command. If you are a child of obedience, here's the command, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, you aren't characterized by disobedience anymore. That, that's not who you are in your life pattern. And if that's true of you, then you must put away anything that remains of your former sinfulness. That's his point. You're now children of obedience. Live like it. Live like it. Notice how he says the same thing essentially in verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth. I love that. This is not just children of obedience based upon their own rules and regulations. Not their own standards. This is obedience to the truth, the truth of God, the truth of the Word of God, which he says later on, the living and abiding Word of God. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. On the very basis or by the grounding of your obedience to the truth, You've placed yourself in a position not only to trust Christ for salvation, but you've been purified in your souls so that, you, so that you can now sincerely love one another even fervently from the heart. You can't even love like a Christian loves unless you're a Christian. That's why when people don't love like a Christian, it may very well be because they're not a Christian. Because only Christians can love like Christians. And that kind of love is true love, sincere love, bold love. 
humble love. This is a this is a wonderful characterization of the Christian as obedient children, children of obedience. This is this is what we are. This is what characterizes us. You can truly love somebody from the heart because your soul's been purified because you've been obedient to the truth, the very truth of the word of God. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He backs up exactly what Peter says, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Among them, we too all formally lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. You see the connection? Paul says the same thing. Peter's saying it now. As obedient children, as children of obedience, you ought to put away anything that could characterize you as the way you used to be characterized, your former lusts. But you know, I see very wonderful encouragement here. I mean, yes, it does mention in 1 Peter 1.14, lusts, and that's not a good word. That's a bad word. But notice, what's the qualifier? Former lusts. Former lusts. That's so encouraging. What that's saying to us is that even though you are now obedient children, and even though there are some sins that you still commit, even as a Christian, it does not characterize you, at least not as it did before, because formerly you were totally conformed to the lusts of this world. That's what Paul just said. Even as the Gentiles who formerly walked, depraved in their minds, lusting in their hearts, going after impurities, this was what characterized you. But not anymore. Not anymore. The road to sanctification, the path, the track for you to run on is to recognize that as children of obedience... You are different. You're not what you were before. Your thinking is different. Your mind apprehends different things. You're working to a place of understanding this great God who has saved you. You want nothing but to serve and enjoy Him forever because He is the one who has delivered you from your sins and you want nothing but to be characterized as your new lifestyle suggests. And what does your new lifestyle suggest? That you want to please God. That you want to love God. That you could even say about yourself, I admit, I acknowledge that I was formerly a lustful person. That's who I was. In fact, as long as I could even be characterized now as an obedient child, I was then, yes, characterized as a lustful person. You say, I wasn't that way. Well, it may have not been lust sexually, but it certainly was lust in some way, a lust for power, a lust for prestige, a lust for preeminence, a lust for significance, a lust for attention, whatever that lust may be, a lust for money, a lust for anything other than God is a characterization of lust. And he says, if you are to be characterized as children of obedience. The command for you to be holy in this world is do not be conformed to that which formerly was your character or practice. It's true. This is really synonymous with somebody who says they love God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember? We went through it and we said that if someone is elected to grace, chosen by God, it is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that a person can say that they've received Christ, that they're delivered from sin, that they're a Christian, a believer that they're one of the followers of the Lord if they're not intending from the outset or throughout their life to obey Jesus Christ. It is the truth. It's a sham. If you don't have an obedience to the truth, 
if you're not characterized as a child of obedience, if you have no intention of obeying Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with His salvation blood, then you aren't His. You're not a child of obedience. It doesn't characterize you, and therefore, you will be conformed to the world. Peter, however, says, I want to encourage you. I believe that the people to whom I'm writing are children of obedience. And I base that upon the fact that when God does a work of salvation, when He does an electing work, a choosing work, He calls people out of the world into a place of obedience, and by the very nature of that salvation call, by the very characterization of your life and the pattern of your thinking and actions, you are not going to be conformed to those lusts which were formerly your life. Do not be conformed. By the way, it's not an option. It's a command here. How in this world can I be holy? Do not be conformed. That's the answer. You know, I read books after books after books, and sometimes I even ask myself, why do I do this? Where I read about people saying, this is the way to be holy, this is the way to be holy, and so much of it is wrong, it's not true, it's taking someone off the path. It's a path of mysticism, it's a path of pragmatism, it's a path of charismaticism. It's all, everything but the path of true sanctification. It's so simple as Peter saying it this way, do not be conformed to the former lusts. And this lust, you need to know about it. You say, well, I already know about it. That's why I'm thanking God so much that He delivered me from it. Well, notice what you've been delivered from. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Be encouraged, Christian. This is what God says about you. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. If you're a believer, you have won at least the first part of the battle because Christ has saved you. And now he's saying, in the midst of this progressive battle, this continuing issue of the world trying to conform you to its mold, I urge you to abstain from it. You don't even live in this world anymore, at least in terms of your citizenship. That's in heaven. I'm going to call you an alien and a stranger. You don't even belong to this world system anymore. You're not even a citizen of this world anymore, so abstain from these things. In fact, go up to verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. By the way, that's what sanctification is. God sets apart men and women, the bride, the church, the elect, the chosen ones, and He takes them and places them into His own sphere, His own life, His own holiness. We are His own possession, Peter says. We are set apart for His exclusive and personal use. If you want to know what sanctification can be defined as, that's it. We are set apart for God's personal and exclusive use. We're not ourselves. Isn't that what Paul said? You are not your own. You were bought with what? price. And what was that price? Cost God, cost God everything, His Son. That's the price. Cost you nothing, cost God everything. Killed His own Son for the sake of calling you His own possession. That's who you are. Now, notice verse 9. If you are God's possession, if you are that chosen race, if you are that royal priesthood, if you are that holy nation, the very purpose of God calling you to those things is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Boy, what a passage. Borrowing that, that Old Testament imagery and telling us this is who you are now. Verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You see, he's, he's chosen you. He's elected you. He's brought you to a place where once you did not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. 
Oh, beloved, I urge you, he says, as a result of knowing this about yourselves, live as aliens and strangers in this world. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Keep your behavior excellent, he says in verse 12, among the Gentiles. That's another way of saying don't be conformed to your former lusts. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 2. This is what he says about us as well. Since Christ, verse 1, has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see, I don't live now for the sake of my lusts. That's not what drives me. That's not what motivates me. I now live for the sake of the will of God. Is that true of you? Does that characterize you now? Is that what you say is your life? That's what the Bible says about Christians. They no longer live for the sake of their drives. That's what the word lusts means. Epithemia, sometimes used in a, in a good context, like 1 Timothy 3, if a person desires the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Yes, sometimes in a good context, but most of the time, epithemia, that word that speaks of desires, is in a negative context, and that's why it's translated lust. Drives, motivations, habits, desires. And he says, that's not you anymore. That's not what characterizes you. You're different. No longer lust as you once did. You're an obedient child. You're a part of a family. Oh, and I love when he says here in verse 14, don't be conformed. Conform. By the way, it's only used one other time, and you might know where it is, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says... I urge you, I entreat you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Or in some of your Bibles it may be translated, and I think well so, it is your reasonable service. It's logical. In fact, that's the word logicon. It's logical. It's reasonable for you to do this. Why? Because of all that Paul has said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. You've been saved. You've been set apart. God has brought you to a holy place and you're His holy possession and you're a holy nation and therefore you ought to be in practice a holy person. And how do you be holy? How do you become holy? You don't conform yourself to the world, but you are transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a negative, just like Peter, and there's a positive. And the negative for Peter, don't be conformed to your former lusts, Paul, don't be conformed to the world. The positive, Peter, you are to be holy like the one who has called you is holy. Paul, what's his positive? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's always going to be that way. There's always going to be a negative. There's always going to be a positive. There's always going to be something that you've been delivered from, and there's always going to be that place where you're going to be delivered to. We're looking at the goal, and the goal is salvation, ultimate, fi ultimately, finally, completely. And there's a process, that, process that's going on in the here and now, and that process is don't be conformed. Don't let the world shape you into its mold. That might be a good translation of conform. Don't let the world shape you into its mold. Now, some of you might say, aha, but Peter says here in verse 14, don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Aha! When I do lustful things, it is because I am ignorant. No, 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 you can't use that. Context here and in other places, especially like, for instance, Acts 17.30, when Peter's preaching there on Mars, uh, Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, and he says... Because you now know Jesus Christ, because I'm proclaiming Him to you, even those of you who are Gentiles, who did not as the Jews have the oracles of God, now I'm proclaiming to you Jesus Christ. I've brought Him out into the open. I've told all of you Gentiles, this is who Jesus is, and I'm now declaring to men everywhere that they must repent. God may have looked over 
in past times the ignorance of those in the Gentile world who'd never heard about Christ, but I'm telling you about Christ right now. And as of that very moment, there was no ignorance in that place. That's what he's saying. Look, I know, Peter says, you had a lustful pattern of life and it was yours in your ignorance because you didn't know anything about Christ. Christ hadn't been presented to you. It'd be like an unbeliever today and you would say to them, I want to present Christ to you. And they would say this, who is Christ? I don't know of whom you're speaking. Well, who is Jesus? I've never heard that name. I don't know who that is. And there are people, interestingly enough, shockingly enough, who have never heard the name of Christ, don't know anything about Christ. And once you present Christ to them, they are no longer ignorant. Their lust is that which is fully and completely accountable before God because they've been brought the message of Christ and they now need to no longer be conformed to those things. That's what he's saying. It, it, it was in your ignorance, but now you've been brought to a place of Christ Himself, you believed, you become obedient children, and now I'm telling you, don't be any longer conformed to any of those things which were characteristic of you in the past. Now someone might say, well, you keep talking about this concept of that which is characteristic of your past. It seems as though these lusts in my own heart are characteristic of me now. It could be true, and that also could signal the fact that maybe you're not an obedient child. Maybe you're not a child of obedience. Maybe you're not a person who has been living in the sphere of obedience, in the realm of obedience. Oh, it might be true that you go to church it might be true that you read a Bible occasionally. It might also be true that you pray when you get in trouble. It may be true that you give money to salve a conscience. It may be true that you do other works to try to see a relationship between yourself and others as those others proclaim and affirm you. But none of those things have anything to do in a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. None of them. What has to do with a saving relationship to Jesus Christ is to say, I desire to repent of my sins and I place my full confidence and trust in Christ and Christ alone for the sake of what He did on that cross when He died, when He was buried, when He was raised again on the third day. My complete and confident faith and expectation is that Christ is who He is, that He did what He did, and that He will soon return. And when He does, I will give an account for my life. And when I do, I have no other righteousness, no other right standing, no other way to be right with God save the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what true believers, obedient children, have been delivered from. No more times of ignorance. That's done. It is now a time to proclaim that those lusts which characterize a person will damn such a person. That's why the lusts of your souls must be separated you from yourself so that you and your God could be brought together. You can't have your lusts and your God. That's why he says, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls. There's a purification that needs to go on. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, now the Gentiles, they did not understand this, that we were supposed to be sexually pure, they were lusting as pagan people who didn't realize that the will of God was for your sexual sanctification. You're being set apart sexually. They didn't understand that. I've now proclaimed that, and that's now what you must be if you name the name of Christ. You can't live as pagans anymore. The will of God is not sexual immorality, but sexual sanctification, being set apart. Peter David's good commentator on 1 Peter says this, The gospel is an imperative to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Did you hear that? The gospel is an imperative to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Any commitment or faith that does not result in concrete obedience is a misunderstanding of the message and less than Christian faith. 
whatever it is, if it's someone who says, I go to church, and, and I know I'm involved in immorality, I know I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I know that, but I go to church, I read my Bible, I give money, I go downtown and give blood to the Red Cross, I do those things because I know I just want to, as so many people like to say, give back. I just want to give back. I've been blessed so much. If you don't have a conscious, perpetual, abiding faith and trust in Jesus Christ to deliver you from present and future sins, you will die in those sins. And no amount of good works, no amount of good deeds which are not good if they're not done for the sake of Christ. That's why the age-old missionary said, "'Tis this life twill soon be past, and only what's done for Christ will last." You do this for Christ, you respond to Him by faith, God will reward you by characterizing you as a child of obedience, and then He will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to that which you were living in before. That's so wonderful. It's negative, no question about it. It's a negative command. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world shape you into its mold. Yes, it's true of you as you were once characterized that way, but it was true of you. Now you've been seeing this pattern broken in your life. Oh, the power of sin has been broken. And then he gives a positive command. See it there in verse 15? But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. That's positive. Negative, don't be conformed. Positive, be holy in all your behavior. How much of your behavior? Some of it? Most of it? What does he say? All of it. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Oh Lord, you know I'm serving you. You know that I love you. But you know, I, I, I love this too. I, this area of my life, you know, I've always struggled with it. And you know that I've never seen a, a broken pattern of sin in this one area, but in all the rest, be holy in all your behavior. You must be rid of it all. You must break with it all. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about direction. What is the direction of your life? Now, we're not talking about someone who needs to be perfect at the point of salvation. If that were true, how many would be saved? None. And for what reason would Christ have needed to die? None. We're talking about a person who recognizes their imperfections, recognizes their unholiness, and who says, I want to be rid of it all. Someone who wants to submit themselves to Jesus Christ as Lord, Lord of all. And when you are behaving as you should, you're behaving like the Holy One who called you. You know, Peter could say, be holy. Be holy, that's the command. The negative is don't be conformed to the world. The positive is be holy. And I imagine someone will come along, mainly some preacher like me or someone like you, and say, but, but what does it look like? Here's the answer. God. Looks like God. Well, who is God? Holy, holy, holy. Thrice holy God. Pure, pristine, clean, perfect. Can't even look upon sin and evil. His eyes are distant from it. He's not held in its grip. It doesn't allure him. He's holy. And you must be holy. You see, he's called you to be set apart. He's called you to be separated from it. He, he set you on a place and says, he or she is my personal possession. You know, and someone might come along and say, I will be owned by no one. And God will one day show you who has created you. And you will be in hell, agonizingly affirming that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Isn't that what Paul say in Philippians 2? Doesn't he say that there will be those 
who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and they will be proclaiming, some of them forced to do so against their will, but, but acknowledging it nonetheless that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. And because He's Lord, He demands what He demands, and what He demands is not just perfection, but He also demands that we walk in that perfection. And by the way, in case anybody thinks they can't do that, which should be all of us, He says, I'll give you my Holy Spirit who will give you the power to carry it out. Lord, I can't do it. I know you can't. That's why I've given you my Holy Spirit. He can give you the power, the energy, the forcefulness, the desire and you, under that power, that sphere of influence, because you're a new creature in Christ, you can come to the place of that kind of obedience, and you will be delivered from the very power and progression of sin. Boy, don't you want those days. It seems as though when I prepare these messages, and I, of course, when I study, have to preach them to myself, which hurts all the more, and then I read these passages, and then I groan in my office. I wonder sometimes if my secretary and the other staff people are hearing me groan in my office because I'm reading these things and I say, oh Lord, deliver me this, this sinful man. I know I've been delivered characteristically, but it seems as though when I look at my life, where's the holiness? Where is it? And then I'm encouraged because it says, former lusts. And then I go to another verse and it says, don't be conformed to the world. And I say, I'm undone again. And then I read another verse and it says, be holy, and then I'm really undone. And then I think about the precious Holy Spirit who gives us the power to say no to sin. And then I re-grip on the truth that we who have the Word of God can take that Word, place it into our hearts and minds, and we can say no to sin because God has given us the answers to those things. And when Satan comes a-calling, I can say, no, Satan... When the demons come, when the world allures, I can say no to those things because I know the one to whom I have believed. And he delivered me characteristically and he will deliver me yet progressively. And then I rejoice. So they hear me groaning for a while, then rejoicing for a while. It's amazing. And isn't that the Christian life? Groaning, rejoicing. Groaning, rejoicing. You say, well, I'm more on the groaning side than, re than the rejoicing side. Well, that's because you're dealing with your sin. Rejoice in that. And then when you come to the place of rejoicing, don't rejoice so much that you lose the fact that sin is just around the corner. And when things seem to be the most calm, that's when the stirring under the water is going to be most felt. We are to be holy because God is holy. Are you holy? You say, characteristically, yes, I have crossed the place where I have come to the place of knowing Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm holy in that sense. Are you progressing in your holiness? Boy, this illustration that I, that I saw this week on the news, Nicholas Farber, I believe is his name, little boy out in California. I mean, it seems to be a, a rash of these things, doesn't it? It seems, it seems as though almost every day you turn on the television, you, you, you see another report of a child who's been abducted, a child who's been taken away, and apparently in a, a house where there are a sleeping father and a sleeping son, two masked men break into the house and beat up the father and take this Nicholas Farber and take him away. And then we heard just a few days ago that he was found and that he was found safe. Now that doesn't always happen, but with this particular situation, when he was found safe, and when I heard his father affirm his safety, I thought, you know what? That's exactly what happens in the Christian life. That, that's what happens. I, I, was, I was in that house of bondage, the house of slavery, and what what God allowed, because He allows everything, He allowed the, the, the Satanists of this world to break in and to beat me up and to enslave me and to take the things that I hold dear. And then, by His precious Holy Spirit, through a call, 
God has delivered me safely. No harm. Now what do you think that Nicholas and his dad ought to do in order to respond to that deliverance? Oh, thank you. And then go on your merry way? What do you think ought to be the response? Should the response be, thank you, Lord, appreciate the deliverance. Now, I'm going to live like I want. You've given me this tremendous bondage breaking. I'll see you later. That's how some of us, it seems, react, don't we? I was reading this week from John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, and you know where it says there in this wonderful verse, verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all, also in all your behavior. The Holy One who called you. Remember, in, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, He called you. Election. That's what God is doing. He has a plan, and He's going to affect that plan. And that plan includes the calling of us to grace, the calling of us to sanctification. This is what John Murray writes about calling. If we are to understand the strength of this word, the word calling, as used in this connection, we must use the word summons. The action by which God makes His people the partakers of redemption is that of summons. And since it is God's summons, it is efficacious summons. In other words, it's going to happen. Because God doesn't do stuff that don't happen. The summon, that was not John Murray, that was me. He doesn't talk that way. The summons is invested with the efficacy by which we are delivered to the destination intended. We are effectively ushered into the fellowship of Christ. Oh, I love that. God calls you, and what He calls you to is a destination, and what the destination is, is fellowship with Christ, and that's what God calls you to, and that's what He brings you to, and that's what you have, fellowship with Christ. There is something determinant about God's call. By His sovereign power and grace, it cannot fail of accomplishment. If we find ourselves at home in the ungodliness, lust, and filth of this present world, it is because we have not been called effectually by God's grace. See? You're living in that. That characterizes you. If that's who you are, that means you haven't been called effectively, effectually by His grace. The called, another name for a Christian, the called must exemplify in their conduct the calling by which they have been called and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The sovereignty and efficacy of the call do not relax human responsibility, but rather ground and confirm that responsibility. In other words, because God has done it, He grounds it. He lays a foundation for it. He brings it to pass. And then He says this wonderful, pithy, short statement. The magnitude of the grace enhances the obligation. Oh, the magnitude of the grace enhances the obligation. You don't just say, thanks for saving me, Christ. See you later. You say, oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beating your breast, knowing your condition, knowing what you've been saved from, and then you say, Lord, the more and more and more I understand your grace, the more obligated I am to obey humbles me. Humbles me. You ever thought that? You ever thought about the idea that God saved you and you are therefore humbled into service? You know, I see these guys all through this week. I took several folks on a tour of the campus, folks that were coming in from the outside who are friends of mine, and I came in on several of the nights, and there were people who were mowing lawns and cleaning rooms and taking out the trash and making things smell nice and making carpets clean. I was even in here on Saturday studying and folks were in here cleaning and I just thought to myself, what another grand illustration of people who have been saved by grace and humbled into service. Just want to serve. doesn't matter if it's cleaning toilets, doesn't matter if it's picking out trash, doesn't matter if it's teaching a Bible study, doesn't matter if it's preaching a sermon, I am humbled in my gratitude to God. 
And that's why verse 16 says, Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Because it is written, Leviticus 19.2, For I am the Lord God. I'm holy, so you must be holy. You want to know what God is like? Look at His holiness and be like that. Leviticus 11, so many other passages. There's one that I want you to turn to as we close, Isaiah 57, 15. This is the capstone on it all. This is it, Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. That's His name. That's not just an attribute. That's not just a characteristic. He is named holy. What is your God's name? Holy. Who do you serve? Holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. He's not only holy, He dwells in a holy place. And also... And you ought to be encouraged. I should be too. And I also dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Oh, preacher, I've been brought low this morning. Take courage, my friend. The Holy One revives the unholy. He brings the broken, the contrite, to a place that is even the reflection of His own holy character. Is that you? Is that your life? Is that what you want to be? That's how you can be holy in this world. Let's pray together. Father, the little phrase I know I'm not what I need to be. But thank God I'm not what I was. It is so appropriate. Bring us this holiness. Thank you for marking us out as separated people. And may you now progressively, daily, systematically show us experientially how to be holy. We thank You for the written Word of God that says, because it is written, as though the Word of God itself is a perfect book, and it is, and because it shows us the path of life, and it does, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We bow to Your holiness. Your name is holy.